that was kind of a fun thing to do. I appreciate you taking that, that jump with us, making it a little bit more interactive. The Ten Commandments are sometimes something that have this weight to them without always knowing all of what is in them. And so it seems of value to put those words in our mouths to see how they, they felt and impacted us in that way. We're going to talk a little bit about them in the sermon here this morning, but I want to also remind you all that we have uh, Bible studies that are meeting each week, one on Monday night, 7 p.m. by Zoom, and one Tuesday afternoon at 1 o'clock here at the church. Um, and they, they will have the chance to go even deeper than we do this morning. Now, that seems a particular note because there are 10 commandments here, and so we could be talking about this for 10 weeks and still have some depth to go. But we're going to pack it all in to one Sunday, so we're just going to take one avenue and one shot into this, um, despite all of the depths and directions that we could go. Let us begin with a word of prayer. Almighty God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable unto you, our rock and our redeemer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. So the Ten Commandments sit in kind of this curious position within our cultural lives and even our daily lives. They have this sort of weight to them, a natural gravitas, that we might agree seems appropriate for what is generally considered this fundamental guideline for moral living. And at the same time, we, send, we tend to suffer from this sort of memory loss where we feel so strongly about the use of the commandments and yet cannot consistently remember what they say. Because few of us can name all ten, myself very much included. I mean, we know there's ten, and we could probably eke out the highlights, you know, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not covet, so on and so forth. We're more than likely going to taper off, maybe halfway, maybe a little bit past, but unable to get to all ten of the Ten Commandments. And so without this robust knowledge of the specifics, we have instead this very general sense that all ten sort of revolve around that ubiquitous phrase, thou shalt not. I once read an author who commented that no one had taught him to sin as well as the Benedictine monk had at the school that he attended and where the monk taught. The monk had taught him and his classmates the Ten Commandments, in great detail, unveiling all manner of sinful avenues available to the intrepid youngster and revealing the sinfulness perhaps already present. As is so often the case, the ten were wielded like a ruler to measure all of an individual's shortcomings and to summarily wrap the knuckles of any unfortunate transgressor. When we debate about posting the Ten Commandments in the public eye, as comes up, it seems like, with regularity, it's always conversation about posting them somewhere like in courtrooms. It doesn't seem like anyone is arguing for us all to post printouts of the Ten on our bathroom mirrors to look over each morning, perhaps as a reminder not to covet our neighbor's lawnmower or to avoid idol worship this Tuesday. We only seem to pull out the commandments when our minds turn to trying and convicting whatever and whenever it is needed to condemn someone or to condemn ourselves. This is how it seems like the Ten Commandments are meant to be used. Some 20-odd years ago, the former Alabama Super Supreme Court Judge Roy Moore fought and then lost a battle to keep a granite monument of the Ten Commandments in his courthouse. This monument was removed and summarily began this sort of press tour with Moore, a mobile talking point that was shuttled from truck to church to conference center and then back 
to the truck and on around the state and the country, and has continued making appearances throughout the course of Moore's up and down political career, even within the past few years, as a symbol of something, though it's hard to say what exactly it might be symbolizing. This marble behemoth stands about waist high, uh, with the two tablets carved as if they're emerging out of the top of the monument. It doesn't look all that heavy until it's moved and in motion. On the road, the commandments were moved about with a 23-foot crane that visibly strained to lift all 5,280 pounds of solid rock. For years, when it returned to Alabama, they used a 57-foot, 5-ton crane that still seemed to struggle to put this 2.5-ton monument in place. And when it was given a permanent home just two years ago, pictures of the process showed this monument surrounded by a team of movers and equipment, a pallet jack and crowbars, all of which was needed to relocate the full weight of the Ten Commandments. And this may well be a better symbol for our perception of the Ten Commandments than we would ever want it to be. The Babylonians used to make gods out of heavy idols that had to be loaded and unloaded in moves around their country. The prophet Isaiah once quipped at them in the spirit of the first commandment, saying, these things you carry are loaded as burdens on weary animals. It seems that sometimes in our understanding and perception of them, the Ten Commandments have become a heavy burden, a set of obligations and restrictions hanging around our collective collective necks. Sometimes we imagine them curtailing the behavior of a floundering society, And sometimes we feel their suffocating weight on our own shortfalls. And we truck them from place to place, straining under their weight, bearing down on our consciences. It is odd, then, that the law, given through the Old Testament with the Ten Commandments standing at the center of them, is so joyfully celebrated. It can almost catch us off guard in psalms like the 19th, which begin in praise of creation. Heaven is declaring God's glory, the poet writes in that psalm, and then gushes on about how perfectly God moves the sun across the expanse of the sky every day. But then, as if out of nowhere, no transition whatsoever, the poet suddenly exclaims, God's instruction is perfect. The Lord's laws are faithful. The Lord's regulations are right, and the Lord's commands are pure. The poet The psalmist found the very same delight in the law given by God as in the splendor of a sunset or the marvel of planetary movement. And this one psalm hardly stands alone. Over and over again, the psalmists sing the praises of the law and the prophets declare its wonder. They could see something marvelous and joy-filled about the law. They could see something we have a tendency to overlook. The Ten Commandments and all of the law are not given for us to establish a relationship with God, but to shape it. The Ten Commandments begin with this statement, which is very much not an instruction, just a statement. I am the Lord your God, says God to the people, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. There's not complete uniformity around how the Ten Commandments are numbered from one to ten, And actually, in the Jewish understanding, this begins the first command. It's not introductory material. It's the foundational element on which the whole of the commandments rest. 
The people are not given the commandments to follow to prove that they should be saved by God. They have already been saved by God. They are already in relationship with and are loved by God. And the commandments continue on there from the beginning all the way to the end, and then they end and Scripture moves on without ever clarifying the consequences for disobedience to the Ten Commandments. Now, God intends for these ten to be followed, to be sure, but our obligation to follow them doesn't follow from some set of arbitrary punishments we're trying to avoid. There are no punishments offered or suggested. Our motivation for following the Ten Commandments is entirely different. You saw how I lifted you up on eagles' wings and brought you to me. God told the people through Moses in that first part of the passage. So now if This has been, oh, there we are, marvelous. This has been about how my day has gone. Some days are just like that. Uh, I really don't, I might turn this into a sermon point or something later, but I'm not about to today. Uh, It has been said, and I have said for myself, that nothing bad ever happens to preachers. They just get more material for sermons. Sometimes it takes a little while to coalesce into a sermon illustration. All right, I think I've got uh, batteries in my microphone, so you can put me on whichever one works better. Where were we? Okay, so we're talking. God tells the Israelites, you see how I lifted you up in eagles' wings. I brought you through to me. So now, if you faithfully obey me and stay true to my covenant, you will be my most precious possession out of all the peoples. You will be a kingdom of priests for me and a holy nation. The purpose in the covenant laid out in the Ten Commandments here and in all of the understandings of it is not that these are things to be done in order for God to love us or be okay at being in relationship with us. The purpose of these commandments is to become a priestly nation, one that has known God, one that has met God face to face in salvation and redemption and then one that can make God known to those around them. And so in this understanding, the commandments are tools to help the people stay true to the God that they love and to help them reflect the love of God in all that they do. This correlates with the two broad movements you can find in the Ten Commandments. The first half of the Ten focus and speak particularly about remaining in right relationship with God? What are those things that we should do in order to make sure we don't forget God and forget that we love God? And then the second half speaks to social relations between God's people and their neighbors. And so together they provide this compelling shape for a community that has consistency between their religious beliefs and how they treat others, how they treat the poor and the immigrant, the widowed and the orphan, the sick and the dying, the enslaved and the oppressed. These ten instructions, then, are not arbitrary rules by a capricious God who wants proof of a people's loyalty and so will make them do whatever, 
but are instead an insight into the kind of world that God intends for us to create and to live in. And then in this understanding, it becomes rather a tragic misuse of the commandments to wield them as some sort of absolute boundaries on behavior. While the commandments might seem simple and unchanging, the world is a complex place, and a surface application of the Ten Commandments is what led some to accuse Jesus of breaking God's instructions when he healed on the Sabbath. And so God told the people, rest on one day and work the remaining six. But Jesus broke that commandment because the commandments cannot absolve us from the lifelong quest for wisdom and understanding that God has drawn us on. And they themselves are not presented as the end of all understanding, but as windows to understand what God would want for us. And so they are true and they are right, and yet they require us to look into them and through them to see the God who is calling us into right relationship with God and with one another. They are not standards simply to check off as we see whether we have failed to break them, or whether we have failed them, whether we have broken them or not, but they are something far more uplifting and life-giving than that. This imagery that God uses with the Israelites, taking them on eagles' wings out of Egypt, is lovely. Eagles are these wonderful beasts of creation. I've gotten the chance to see them just once or twice in their natural habitat. There's one instance when visiting family that lived on a lake. We got to see eagles nesting in a tree. And in that nest, there were some adolescent eagles, young and yet still magnificent. And eventually, we got to see them as they took off and they flew around the lake. They looked graceful as if they had done it all their lives. And I wonder what sort of instruction it took for them to know how to do that. Perhaps their elders taught them not to flap their wings too hard. For that's not how eagles fly. There's a bit of flapping involved, but most of it is stretching out their wings to be carried on the drafts of air that pull them upward. It is work to be sure, but is not tiring and endless, but it is graceful and soaring to find that pull of the air on up into the heavens. An eagle can fly 10,000 or 20,000 feet up into the air, far more than they could do all under their own strength, but because they have found the force that draws them up there, they simply hang on for the ride of their lives. Eagles are unique in that when the storms are coming, sometimes they do not even fly out of them, but into them. They have no fear because they know that they are not the sole source of their upward mobility. It is not their strength alone that carries them. And even in the storms, there are winds that pull them upward. I wonder if the Ten Commandments are less of a weight that pulls us down and more of a draft that sends us upward. Those in the church who might speak about their experience to youngsters looking to learn how to fly, do not generally talk about never-ending perpetual struggle, about forever keeping rules in front of them about what to do and what not to do. They speak eloquently about stories 
Stories where they were saved by God, where they were loved by God, and somewhere in that salvation and in that love, they found a force that pulled them into right relationship with God and with one another, that drew them into being more loving, more gracious, and more generous. This is a story of the Ten Commandments, to be sure, but rarely as though they would list them out in rules and say, here, take these and follow these, and you'll be okay. Much more often, it's a story that says, do you know that God saves? And if you know that God saves, have you felt that pull to come closer to God, to be loved by God, and to love one another? The life of faith is not straining against a weight that would pull us down and hold us steady, but it is flying ever higher, pulled from above. Friends, may it be so. Amen. I invite us now to continue in worship as we sing together our next hymn which is Lead On, O King Eternal, number 580. Let us stand and sing together.